You're listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest this week, well, he's coming from a place where I have to confess, I had to look it up on a map to be 100% clear on where it exactly was. So I'm going to give you a little geography quiz before I make the introduction, everyone. Has anyone ever heard of the Isle of Man? Many of you may have said yes. Now, question number two, can you find it on a map without asking Google first? So it's right there in that sea, right between England and Ireland, kind of midpoint there in the sea in the UK. So with that, my guest is Chris Hall, co-founder and chairman of Security Limited, which is an Internet of Things connectivity provider. Even more interesting. Chris has worked in the telecommunications sector since graduating from Cambridge University back in 1984. Since 1997, he's lived on the Isle of Man, where he was the CEO of Manx Telecom. And in 2000, he led the charge to build and launch Europe's first commercial 3G mobile network. And since 2011, he's been an active angel investor and director or board advisor in tech startups and companies in all different sectors, and is the co-founder and chairman at Stacuity Limited. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Laura. Absolutely delighted to be here. Now, what's your fun fact, aside from the fact that you live in a place that most people couldn't find on a map if their life depended on it without the assistance of Google? What's your fun fact? So my fun fact is, during my first ever business trip to the United States, I was lucky enough to visit the Oval Office in the White House. Oh, my goodness. So that's quite the invitation you got. How did you manage to arrange that without getting arrested? <laughs> so I was working on a three-month secondment in Washington, D.C., which was an amazing opportunity, working with a great bunch of people who were sales agents for our system. And one day, our chief executive invited me in the office and said, have you ever been to the White House? Clearly, the answer was never. Would you like to go? So the answer was absolutely. So he said, report to this place on Thursday evening in a couple of days' time, which I duly did. So I sort of thought this would be the public tour. Sure. So I'd imagine there'd be about a thousand other people queued up. When I arrived, went through all the security, there's about 15 of us. So I thought, mm, okay. And then the lady who's the us around came in and said, right, we're going to start in the West Wing. Okay, this is good. And yes, we had a literally fantastic tour, we'll going through all the offices, I remember standing behind the lectern in the press briefing room, which was pretty cool. And then the highlight of the tour, this was in the time of President Reagan. So it's obviously an old story, but President Reagan, I think, had gone home for the evening. So he wasn't in his office, but we finished in the Oval Office. And it was just amazing being in the office of the most powerful man in the world and actually seeing these jar of jelly beans on his desk <laughs> was incredible. Which is the evidence that was truly during the Reagan administration. And there you go. And the question is, did you take one? I was far too polite. So. <laughs> and I don't like jelly babies too. Didn't like jelly beans. Okay. So, but there was, was a little temptation that would have been curious. Like, just should I take one of President Reagan's jelly beans? Would he mind? Would he know? Would it be okay? Not that there's not four billion cameras probably all hidden behind books and plants and those kinds of things. So they'd stop you on the way. But, oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Now, Tell us about Stacuity. What is your 30-second elevator pitch? 
Right. So as you said, we do Internet of Things connectivity. For anyone not familiar with Internet of Things, it is simply connecting stuff or devices or things or machines to the Internet so they can communicate with each other or back to the servers or the systems monitoring them. Probably all your listeners have 20 things in their homes connected to the Internet, your Alexa, your smart TV. So that's all connected by Wi-Fi. The bit we do is for mobile. So anything which is moving or needs more secure communications, we connect those. So it could be things like diabetes monitors, it could be transport tracking systems, it can be alarm systems. And what we've devised is a very unique, innovative new platform, which does it better than the existing services, much better security, much better control, and much easier to set up. And now with all the AI that's happening and cryptocurrencies and all that kind of stuff, I think it can't be secure enough. So thank you. And here's hoping that you can be wildly successful with all of that. Now, in creating all of this, and to the extent that issues like the Internet of Things or IoT is still somewhat new conceptually in the grand scheme of things, and certainly to a lot of people in the usage space, what is something that you wish more people understood about your role, the company, or the industry? And what is your role in changing this perception? So a lot of our ultimate end customers, end users, may not even know that they've got IoT connectivity. The perception we're trying to change as a really innovative new kid on the block is the legacy industry. There's about 600 companies, can you believe, providing IoT connectivity. So it's a pretty crowded marketplace, so mm. quite scary for a startup to be throwing themselves into a, you know, what is a big pool, very competitive pool. Sure. But the one thing all those people have in common is they rely on the mobile networks, the mobile networks we know and use for our mobile phones in our pockets. And those networks were designed for voice, for cell phones. So they're not designed for IoT. So what we've done is started with a complete white bit of paper. I've got a brilliant CTO innovator. So the white bit of paper and designed a network specifically for IoT. So the perception or the communications message we have to get out there to the 600 people in the sector is you can do this better and you can do it better, you can do it faster, and you can deliver better services to your end users if you partner with us. So that's really my role as chairman is to support the team in just evangelizing something really new into a well-established sector. Do you find that for many of your bigger audiences that they just still don't understand that, and tell me if this metaphor is accurate, but that the use of the original mobile platform or networks that were created with the intention of just being for phone, while yes, we are currently using them for all the other mobile applications now, email and text messages and all those other apps. But to use those networks for these purposes is kind of like bubblegum and duct tape making them work together, but it's not really the most efficient, the most effective, the most it's because it wasn't intended for these purposes. That's where all the leakage is and that's where all the other vulnerabilities and problems come from. Am I understanding this correctly? Well, certainly there is an issue. You're absolutely right that the legacy networks just don't give you the control and functionality you want. I think most people who've been in the industry absolutely get the problem. Mm-hmm. I think the bit we have to evangelize is that they find it hard to believe that 12 people sitting on a rock in the middle of the Irish Sea <laughs> have actually come up with something, which is a step change to do things better. We had a great mm-hmm. sales call last week where we pitched to someone very respected in the industry and explained our approach. And they said, yeah, we definitely need one of those. And they clearly got away to research the market 
because they wanted to get one. Sure. And came back to us three months later and hadn't found anyone else doing what we're doing. So mm. that was great. You know, those are the sort of discussions we're having. The classic startup problem, to be honest. How can a small startup actually do something clever when I've got a thousand people working for me who haven't done it? Right. If it was that possible, why hasn't someone in Silicon Valley come up with it already? Or why hasn't someone in New York or one of the other tech hubs, Silicon Valley, Silicon Alley, wherever it is, shouldn't those guys have figured it out first? What do you know that they don't know? That there's a credibility problem in the argument just based on the who? Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely right. And the big thing for us is we now launched last month. So now is actually, for the early discussions a year ago, it was pretty much sideware, vaporware. It was a, now it's real. Now we can yes. give you a SIM card. You can get away. You can fire it up in a couple of minutes and you can test that it works. So that for us is a bit of a game changer now. And it's really... Uh, quite an exciting time now as we engage with potential partners and resellers. Yes. And it's interesting because I think a lot of times when we think about founders and startups, there's an expectation, especially in tech sectors and things that it's the women and the ethnic minorities and it's other people who will be less likely to be taken seriously if they say we found a silver bullet or we found this whatever it is that no one else has figured out. There's a tendency to be less ready to believe these things, a bit more skeptical. And yet this is a massive industry that's already there. This is more about a geographic underestimation, as it were, because you said in a 12 people on a rock in the middle of the Irish Sea, we never think about geographic bias as being something that would come in. And I'm curious, are the other 11 people also senior leaders in the field or are they a lot of 20-year-olds that would fit more of the model of the tech startup brain children or something else? We have um, working with the four co-founders have all worked together in the past. Mm. And we're in, at the moment, a very nice situation where really awesome people who worked with us in the past have said, I want to come and join this journey. Mm. So everyone has, at the moment, got experience, which is not to say that we won't be recruiting very, very bright young things as we scale up and grow because you need a mix. But no, I think one of the really nice things is people are bringing a wealth of experience. But for them, what it's really exciting to be working on something groundbreaking. Yes. Because quite often in our careers, you work on something which is fairly vanilla. There might be 10 or 20 people doing exactly the same as you. So to have an opportunity to work on something which is genuinely exciting and genuinely groundbreaking, I think that's what motivates us all. It's exciting. So it sounds like there's an age bias, perhaps, especially in a tech industry where the expectation is the Mark Zuckerbergs and the whoever else that are sitting there in their college dorms and coming up with the next hottest things, that the expectation is you should be of a different generation. And yet, so part of the evangelization is saying, mm, no, we know what we're doing and you still have something to learn from us. Yeah. I should hasten to add that every single member of the team is a lot younger than me. Okay. <laughs> so they are the bright young things. Yeah, I've worked in big teams, but some of the most fun I've had is working in small teams. And I'm a great believer that a small team of really motivated and capable people can mm. deliver faster and quicker than a team four times the size. It gets bogged down in bureaucracy, gets down bogged in politics, spends yes. all the time in meetings. So that's where we are at the moment. But having just completed our fundraising round, we're going to be bringing more people on board to join the journey. Yes. Well, that sounds exciting. And I can't wait to see where that journey goes. And now in doing all of this convincing and compelling, did you ever think that you did a really great job of explaining something only to have the listeners look at you like a deer in the headlights? <laughs> Frequently, I'm sure. <laughs> 
So earlier this year, I had, as chairman, had the simple task of going out to raise funds so that we could start building the team and fund the launch. And our target is we didn't want to go to venture capitalists or private equity at this stage. We wanted to do it entirely from angel investors. I've been an angel investor myself for 10 years. So I thought I was pretty knowledgeable and pretty clued up about how to do this. And in particular, the pitch deck is obviously really important. Sure. I was very confident I could write a really good pitch deck. So sat down, worked with the team and produced it, something I was very, very proud of. And I decided to dry run it with a couple of friends who I knew would be quite blunt and would give you honest feedback because there's no point in nodding and saying it's great. And the very first meeting I had, it was exactly as you described it. It was uh, someone who had no sector knowledge and the eyes glazed over a bit. And we'd made the classic mistake of probably assuming too much knowledge and actually being a bit too technical. And we have a horrible thing in telecoms of using three and four letter abbreviations. So it was just some really rookie mistakes, but it was certainly useful to get that feedback. And we'd also just been too detailed because going back, the whole point of a pitch deck is really to stimulate questions and get enough interest that we can open conversations. So I actually ended up completely rewriting it, taking out half the pages, half the words, then became much more effective because when we were sitting down with people, if they were interested in the finance, they can drill into the finance. They want the go-to-market, fine, we'll talk about the go-to-market. So that was definitely where I got it wrong, but fortunately you can change and improve quite quickly. Yes, and you were smart to ask someone to be a test audience for you first. So you weren't going in cold or with the expectation of that someone should. I mean, of course, you're expecting that that audience would understand it, but were the people in your test audience experts? They did a bit of each. The people we were targeting probably on our long list of people we thought were interested, probably 25, 30% had industry knowledge. 70% were general business people. Sure. So we decided it's much easier to start from the general place and then have a couple of extra slides at the back, which we could slot in for people who were really knowledgeable. But there was another really interesting learning came from this because uh, I was very proud of my deck and spent a lot of time in it. But actually, the real learning was some of our most successful meetings and ultimate mm-hmm. fundraisers. We didn't need the deck at all. Because mm. our chief exec, the the genius who's invented this magic, just has an amazing founder story. So actually, for a number of meetings, we just sat down and introduced the contact to Mike. You know, Mike would tell his story. And that sometimes was just enough to get us, well, that's really interesting. I want to be part. And yes, send me the paperwork, but I'd like to invest. And it's amazing that you assume that, and of course, it's not like the founder story by itself was enough to write a check, but it certainly was enough to say, I want to have another longer conversation in order to get to that investment. But it really does highlight the importance of being able to tell a story well, having a good story to tell and then doing it justice in the retelling. So you can have the nicest slides on the planet, but if you don't have the story, it's not compelling. And if the story is that compelling, you won't even need, or you may not even need the deck or not need to use it to the same degree. So great example of the keys of storytelling, especially in entrepreneurship, but really in just about any sector and not getting stuck in that expert's curse of way too much jargon, way too much alphabet soup in the acronyms, way too much technical detail. Know your audience and get to what they know and care about. And in this case, it was clearly the story. Now, what about speaking with some power? Tell me about a time when you really needed to assert yourself powerfully. 
So through my leadership career, there's lots and lots of one-to-one situations, which is probably not appropriate to tell you and share with you. But the one which I always remember is when I first moved to the Isle of Man. And actually, like yourself, I'm ashamed to say, I didn't actually know where it was. <laughs> and I actually lived in England. <laughs> so I actually thought it was the Isle of Wight, which is another island in the south of England. And I'm going to have to go look that one up now after we're done with this. Okay, so Isle of Wight following Isle of Man. Continue. So when I eventually found the right place and landed in the right airport, my first role on the island was as the Director of Business Development. And the telecoms company there was a little bit slow in embracing the internet because in our industry, the internet was a transformational and there's opened up all sorts of opportunities. The industry being just telecommunications the in telecoms general, industry, landlines. Yes. Okay. Any telco had to launch data lines, had to build data centers, had to set up email services, whatever. And the Manx Telecom, we've got a small operator, was a bit behind. So I was hired to go in and actually play catch up and actually build a digital services division and actually put in place all the building blocks we needed to be able to compete with other telecoms operators and also the IT companies. So a really exciting opportunity because, again, it's a small island, but you can move really quickly because you've got small resources. So I was very excited about this. So I had a small project team to spearhead this, but needed the cooperation of the rest of the company because they had the resources to actually build some of the stuff. So we, after about a month, had an all-hands meeting where one of the six-monthly, this is what we're doing. And I had to stand up in front of the team and explain to them why we were doing it, what we were doing, and why it was important. And... A lot of the people there were very traditional telecoms engineers who'd been there 30 years and survived very happily without the internet. And having finished my, uh, what I thought was a good story again, the first question came and someone stood up, put up their hand, stood up, said, the internet will never catch on. Why are we wasting our time and money? (laughs) Ah, the beauty of hindsight. Yes. Wow. Obviously, my well-researched presentation hadn't done the job. But that obviously was quite an important vote because there's a lot of people in the audience thinking, "Mm, why are we going to waste our time on this? So the way I had to tackle that was luckily I'd spent a couple of years working in Scandinavia who were very advanced at the time on the internet. So there I'd lived and worked and seen how it was being deployed, how it's being used Mm. and how it was being embraced. So I had a glimpse of the future almost compared to where we were. So that was really the way to get this over the line. Yeah, we can't stop it. It's happening in Scandinavia. It's happening all around the world. It's happening in Asia. So we've only got two choices. We either get on the train or we're going to be in trouble. Yes. And uh, not sure I'll completely convince them, but when we started building stuff and delivering it and selling it, it worked. I would imagine it did, yes. But what a big push to have to do. You're not convincing someone that we should buy this car versus that car. It's a matter of, will the internet exist 10 years from now? Is it necessary? Is it a passing fad of some sort? I mean, that's hard to convince someone that these kinds of trends are really the future and where that was so... It's one thing to say, okay, this new app or this new something else, will it be popular enough? Will it be useful enough? This is a paradigm shift that you were effectively predicting, like massive global level prophecy about how business will be done. I can imagine that would be quite scary for them to hear in many ways or, or almost incredible, not just inaccurate. The paradigm shift is a really good point because one of my slides was we've had the agricultural revolution. We've had the industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. We are now at the very beginning of the information revolution. It was a really big leap for people. Yes. And eventually, I presume you won out. 
we did. And <laughs> it was bigger than just Manx Telecom. Sure. Because from a, being an island in the middle of the Irish Sea, it is a great place for digital businesses. Mm. So it actually had some strategic importance to the government too. And now the economy, we have some fantastic digital players here, particularly, yes. for example, in the internet gaming sector. And they would never be here if we hadn't really accelerated and built some really top quality data centers to attract that sort of business to the island. So, yeah. Who would guess that Global Gaming had some headquarters in the Isle of Man? That would not have been on my top 10 list of guesses. No. So another fun fact about the Isle of Man. Another fun fact. I'm learning them one by one. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, this, Chris, brings us to the Listener 24-Hour Influence Challenge. So this is your opportunity to talk directly to the audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? Right. So my challenge, I've mentioned a couple of times about long-winded communication and too complex. So I would like to set a concise communication challenge. Okay. So I'll try and be concise explaining it. Okay. <laughs> to set a good example. Fair enough. So this was inspired by when I was appointed chief executive officer at Manx Telecom mm -hmm. after my digital project, took over running the whole company. One of the regular tasks was to write a monthly board report. So the template I inherited from my predecessor was quite complex, loads of headings, and it was about a six-page board report every month to go to the board. And what it did do is demonstrate we had a lot going on. But a new boss came in after about a year, and he said, I don't like this. My ground rule is if you can't explain it in two sides of A4, it's not worth saying. Mm. So he said, in the future, I want your board report to be two sides of A4. And by A4, you mean paper size. So here in the US, that would be letter size, like eight and a half by 11. So one sheet of eight and a half by 11, front and back, and that's it. That's correct, yeah. So and I thought, okay, well, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get across everything we're doing in two sides. Went ahead and did it. And of course, he was absolutely right, because this is a strategic board report. Mm. And the board don't really want micro detail about the what's going on. So it was a win-win. Saved me time. It was much easier yeah. to write two sides than five sides. Yes. Saved the board time. And more importantly, it was much clearer and uh, you could really see exactly important issues. I'm sure many of your listeners are fantastic communicators, very concise. But my challenge is if you're doing, it could be a presentation, could be writing a report, could be a long email. It could even be you've got an hour call schedule tomorrow. Why not set yourself the challenge of trying to do it in half? So if it's an hour call, could you do it in half an hour and achieve the same goals? If it's a presentation in particular, if you're going to write 12 slides, could you say it in six slides? And that doesn't mean just copy, paste and make everything half the size and smash lots of stuff onto these slides. It's cut out half of the content in order to cut out half of the number of slides and then some, correct? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, no cheating, you guys out there. I know you're kind. You're going to just use like four point fonts to get everything onto six slides instead of 12. That's cheating. It might not Are work in every situation. And, you, know, you might need 60% or 70%. But if you can do this, then I think it will help influence people. Because I personally admire people who are concise, punchy, and don't waste my time. Yes, I think most of us agree with that. We just don't realize when we're on the other side of that relationship and that we're the ones who need to try not to waste the other person's time by being as short as possible. We get stuck in that. So there's your challenge. Whatever you're going to do, conversation, presentation, or other email, cut it in half and see what you can do. All right. What about nerves? Like you've been in front of so many groups trying to persuade so many people of such big things. What's the most nervous that you ever felt before some sort of speaking engagement? And what communication lessons did you learn from it? 
So you mentioned right at the start of the call that one of the really exciting projects I was lucky enough to be involved with was when 3G Mobile was introduced. Mm -hmm. So 3G Mobile was another paradigm shift because the previous generation 2G was very much voice and incredibly slow data. And this was a really big project for my parent company, O2, because they'd spent about a billion pounds or more on licenses to launch 3G. And the industry analysts were not convinced there was potential there. So you just to make sure I'm understanding the difference in the tech, the leap from 2G to 3G, we talk about 5G now, but 3G was the first version that was intended for data transmission, not just for voice. Correct. The old two, there was a two and a half G. That was very, very slow. So that was like snail-like. So you couldn't really use it and it wasn't usable. Mm -hmm. So 3G was the leap which allowed you to access the internet anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Because we use the island as a showcase or a testbed. And the idea, the goal was to launch Europe's first commercial 3G, get the learning from it, and then use that to accelerate the rollouts across all the O2 properties in Europe. Mm. So this was a big deal for O2. And it was a big deal for the industry too, because there was a lot of hype and talk about it, and a lot of skepticism, cynicism, that uh, is it really going to be as good as it could be? So I had to do a load of media stuff. Industry press once was on the... BBC nine o'clock news for a, about 12 million listeners. But the time I was most nervous was there was another program in the UK called Working Lunch, which was mm-hmm. went out at lunchtime. It was a business magazine show had about 2 million listeners. So only 2 million. So that was all right. But they wanted to do a live interview. <laughs> so I was ended up standing on a mountain in front of <laughs> one of our mobile miles holding our lovely 3G handset. The show went on there at one o'clock, and in, in 10 minutes, we'll be here on the Isle of Man speaking to Chris Hall about the new 3G service. So that was pretty nerve-wracking. I would imagine, in front of a few million people? Yes. <laughs> live television? Yes. And then just to ramp up the pressure, the O2 press office had made it very clear that they were happy for me to do it, provided it went well. And they yeah. made it very clear that if it hadn't gone well, this could be pretty career-limiting. <laughs> Small bit of pressure to add on. Okay, this will be live. You'll be demonstrating new technology. And we all know that even with dumb things like HDMI projectors or, or those kinds of connections in a conference room that is perpetually used for tech, when we are doing the big presentation and we go to hook it up for some reason, we can't get the Wi-Fi, the two devices don't want to talk to each other, the Teams or the Zoom won't load, something always goes wrong in that minute. So to be standing there on a mountain, hoping that the 3G network will suddenly light up your phone and prove that it's actually working and have you show up well on screen in front of 12 million people or else the whole project gets tanked. Yeah, that would be a little nerve wracking, I would imagine. I kept my job, so it must have gone pretty well. Glad to hear that. Yes, we're here today. So in terms of the nerves, I mean, nerves are not necessarily a bad thing. You need some nerves to perform. Sure. So what did you learn from it? The strategy I had was first and foremost to be prepared because the best Mm -hmm. way to control nerves is to be well prepared. And I'd done media stuff and I really sat down and, you know, I knew it was a two minute interview and you can pretty much predict what he was going to cover. So I was well prepared. So that helped, but it still doesn't 20 seconds before you go live on air. So for me, when I'm nervous, I tend to talk very, very fast. Mm. Uh, I think probably a few people would resonate with that. Yes. So when we were given the 20 second countdown, all I said to myself was talk slowly. Smile. Mm. Talk slowly, smile. (laughs) Talk slowly, (laughs) smile. So just really trying to get that muscle memory in my brain. It went really well because at the end of the day, I knew this inside out and back to front. 
And yeah, I was very pleased with it. And it was actually recorded. And someone the other day did send me, they must have found it somewhere on the internet. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so it is there out there if someone wants to find it. So well, you is. can judge for yourself. But I looked like I knew what I was talking about. And actually, the other thing I learned is I actually really enjoyed it. I do like being out of my comfort zone. So yes. for going forward in my career, when I've had other high profile presentations, I thought, well, actually, you know what? This is actually going to be a little bit easier than standing on a mountain with two million people watching me. So yeah, I actually really enjoyed it. I think that's an important lesson that people should think about. Yes, it's scary to take chances. It's scary to try things new, especially when it is in front of an audience, uh, 12, much less 12 million. But the good stuff is that you might actually enjoy it. You might actually get some good press. You might actually have fun with it. And that's one of my most favorite responses that I hear from clients who have, we've been working on the presence, working on getting good at the media or podcast or conference presentations, et cetera, where there was such nerves in the beginning of fear of, I don't think I can do this. I don't want to do these kinds of things. And then to finish and go, that was fun. Who knew that could be fun? Just the world that opens up when you try those new things. So take that, everybody. Put yourself out there a little bit and have fun with it. All right. Well, Chris, we are just about at the end. So tell us a little bit about how people can learn more about you and Stacuity. So Stacuity, we have a website. So if there's anyone out there building an IoT thing and they want connectivity, just go to www.stacuity.com. You can even order a SIM from the website and play around with it and put it into your prototype. And if you want to reach out and connect with me, probably LinkedIn is best. I'm on LinkedIn as Chris Hall, very common name. So there's quite a lot of Chris Halls, but I'm the one who shows up as non-exec director and I'm the only one on the Isle of Man. That would have been my guess. If there were actually Chris Halls on the Isle of Man, I would have been a little surprised. So that's an easy check mark to look for. So thank you so much for joining us today been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yes, goodbye, everybody. And to everybody else out there, thank you, as always, for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice so that we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And of course, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Socola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-Suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.